The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, so welcome to the final sermon in our teaching series through 1 Samuel. Uh, next week, we joyfully enter into our Advent season where we, where we offer gratitude and praise for God and what He has done in sending His Son to us and also an eager expectation of His return um, once again when He will restore all things um, and bring us into the fullness of, of His joy uh, once and for all. And so we look forward to that season. It's a fun time of the year at Holy Cross. Um, and in, in addition to our Advent series, uh, we invite you to uh, a churchwide family Christmas party on December 15th. We've mentioned that to save the date. We have more, more details available on our website, uh, on our event page uh, for that location, time, um, how you can participate um, with our food and things like that. So I encourage you to mark that down in your calendars, uh, go to the website, and, um, and let us know you're coming and, and uh, what you can bring. We'll provide main, di main dish and, and, and ask people to do potluck. So it should be a fun time for everyone. We encourage you to that. Let's now go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, starting in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall, as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Well, my hope is that even if you find yourself joining us this morning and it's the first, first uh, Sunday you've been here in 1 Samuel, maybe you've missed every other, every other sermon, my hope is that you'll still hear from God's word and find hope in what is revealed from God to you. And we've said it many times that uh, 1 Samuel has been a series about uh, an invitation to realize how we ought to follow God as our shepherd king in an age that worships personal freedom. Personal freedom, after all, is perhaps our culture's highest value. It's our highest value in our culture, where the dominant value is to do whatever seems right in our own eyes, to do what we feel we uh, should do. We're flooded with sentiments like, don't let anyone tell you what to believe or who to be. You're not the boss of me. You do you or follow your heart. Now, I know this can sound really general and even very cliche, and we've said them before. It could be like saying, because we're all weak and sinful, we do what is right in our own eyes, but we just need to do what, it, what God wants us to do, and, and everyone will be better. And that's one way of looking at it, but there's so much more to it than that. We need to look deeper than just, you know, if you struggle doing bad things and God has said not to do, then change your attitude and actions and start to do what God will do. It's much deeper than that. We need to look much deeper. We need to look at the things in our heart that functionally become much more important to us than God himself. The things in our heart that cause us to live lives 
where our misplaced desires become the things that rule our decisions and our life itself. We need to really look deep in our heart and, and ask ourselves, what is in there that I am following, trusting in? What moves me? What, what, what voices do I listen to? There's so much to learn from in this passage alone. Not, because it's, not only because it's true in the inspired Word of God, which we believe that it is, but because this story uncovers in a fresh way the temptation that works in each and every one of us. It's the temptation to do what is right in our own eyes. It's the temptation to be moved by our emotions only. It's the temptation to, to consider viewpoints from around us, from people and places and things, and then to come at a conclusion uh, in arriving at a place. And so it, this passage helps us to evaluate our heart so that we can make necessary changes in our life, to follow God faithfully in a time when our culture loves to follow their own hearts. And so let's look at our passage and get right to it and asking a few, few questions that are revealed from this passage. We'll look at three questions. The first question that is revealed from this passage is this, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Up to this point, Saul is the acting king of Israel, but David is God's anointed king that, uh, of God's own choosing that will soon take Saul's place. Saul has been hunting David to kill him, possibly for many years. Saul has been chasing David. David has been running from Saul, and it's been going on this way for years. But David never falls into Saul's hands, never falls into his trap. And he has seemed, well, by God's providence, we learn, he has seemed to be able to escape Saul altogether. And as soon as this passage begins, we see a pretty exciting plot development, don't we? It, it rushes right to the most important part of the passage. Saul's got to go to the bathroom. And you maybe you were distracted as I read this, and you're like, what does this really mean? What's happening? Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. There's no special Greek meaning to this. He, he needs to go to the bathroom, and that's exactly what he is doing. What an interesting thing. Of all the caves in all of the city, and all the time they've been chasing each other around a mountain, there are literally hundreds of different caves and cracks and crevices. And David has been hiding out for years, and Saul has been pursuing him. And here we see that Saul goes in to take a bathroom break, not knowing that David is in there, in the deep recesses of the cave, and he is there with his men, and they are deep in there and they are hiding. Saul is unaware, of course, and he comes in to go to the bathroom. And while in there, David and, David and his men seem to have a very spirited debate about what to do. And his men say, David, look at what God has done. All of this time, all of this suffering, all of this running from him, God has finally given him, your enemy, into your hands. Go and do what you think is right in your own eyes. What else could this mean after all? What else could it mean? What are the chances, we could say, that Saul at this moment would find the cave that David himself is in? And Saul has no idea that David is hiding in the shadows. It's David's chance to kill Saul and to finally end all of his discomfort and suffering and to take the throne that God has promised to him. Try to imagine what's going on here. Saul has turned murderous. He's been hunting David. David has been promised the throne, yet is being occupied by a king that has gone mad with rage and envy. What to do would seem like a no-brainer. What to do would be to take out Saul, as David's men point out. But this passage reveals something much more complicated. It reveals in the first way 
how it's possible to be tempted, we, how it's possible for us to be tempted the same way that David is tempted. It's a temptation to listen to people and to advice that tends to favor our situation and tells us what we want to hear more than anything else. Do you notice how we do that? We love to listen to advice that seems to favor our situation. We love to listen to people's encouragement and advice on what to do in life in the areas that that make us feel good about ourselves. In this situation, we see David's men play into this sense of vengeance that would probably weigh very hard and heavy on David's heart. And we see that it weighs, it weighs heavy on all of us. They see that Saul walk into a cave and say, God must be giving you a gift of all gifts. And David struggles with this. He struggles with what to do. You can imagine David creeping up on Saul with a knife in his hand, and he's He's talking to himself, and he hears that word. He hears those things from God kind of playing over and over in his head quietly. I'm giving your enemy into your hand. And David must think, it's got to be what it is. It's got to be what God has intended. But the question is, is God opening a door, or is God tempting David? Is this God's act of providence for David to end his suffering, or is it a trap for David and how do we discern the difference between God's providence and temptation? What does temptation look like, and how do we know if God is providing for us? What's, what is God's means to His end, and what's the difference between something that is just a temptation? How do we discern the different opinions about right and wrong that we through, hear throughout the day? How do we follow God and what He has told us to do? Well, the answer is in the following verses, and David understands this, and he says, God has already decided. Saul is God's anointed. And David mentions this many times in our passage and the rest of the chapter. As evil as Saul was and as favorable the thought was as ending Saul's life and gaining freedom again and finding his place in the throne that God had given to him, David finds anchor in listening to God and letting that be the sole guidance of his heart and the guidance of his life. And you've got to admit, it must have been really hard for him to do that. When God speaks, the argument is over. When we don't have to continue to deliberate, and David knew the ang- he, had, he had gained a, a habit and, and become very good at listening to God in the quietness of the meadows and, or the grazing with the sheep as he's out there with the, with the sheep and tending, God's, tending the, uh, his father's flock. He got really good at listening to God, listening to his words. He knew his voice. We must train ourselves as well, to listen to God's voice more than any other. In the midst of shifting emotions, we must train ourselves to keep our eyes and ears on what God has already said. And maybe even touching on a situation here, one of the strongest emotions I think we can experience, and I even think even a stronger emotion, a stronger um, influencer than even love, affection, or anger, It's got to be the emotion of vengeance. I mean, think about this. There is nothing quite like the desire to get back at a person who has intentionally brought harm to you. Haven't you found yourself like being consumed throughout the day of just, of of, of that kind of feeling of wanting harm to come to a person who has hurt you intentionally? And when you see that person suffering, there's a sense of feeling like just redemption. There's a sense of feeling good that has happened. 
It, I mean, vengeance is something that starts wars. Vengeance ends marriages. Vengeance tends to influence politics and economics. Vengeance even motivates what you name or don't name your child when he or she is born. I mean, you never know how many people you hate until you have to name somebody. Oh, I can't name him Jacob. I, there was a friend in third grade who made fun of my hair, and his name was Jacob. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to name him Esau. I'm going to name This is like... The, I've been waiting my entire life to get back at that person, and now God has given me this opportunity. I'm not going to name him Jacob. We do this. Isn't that, it's comical, it's funny, obviously, but it's true. Vengeance is an emotion that is so powerful, so painful when someone hurts us. We can't identify with, with David's situations, being hunted and his life being hanging by a thread for years, losing family, losing uh, reputation. Uh, trusting in Saul and giving his whole life to Saul, and yet Saul turning on him with such anger, such rage. You know, you've heard, you've heard of looking at the world with rose-colored glasses where we're optimistic about everything. That's what it means to look through the world through rose-colored glasses. It's possible to look through the world through me glasses. We tend to see everything from the perspective of what benefits our lives and to think that that's God's will then. Because this has come into our life and God wants us to be happy and God wants to favor us, well then of course if this is something that pleases me, it must be from God. And if it doesn't please me, then it must not be from God. We tend to see everything from the perspective of what benefits us. David struggles with this. His men surely struggle with this. As they see this good thing that happened, they get to go home, they get to go back to their family, they get to stop running from, from an army trying to kill them, and they think, this is God's will. God desires this. We do this in many ways. Say you get a job that you were praying for long and hard. You're praying for the job. And that job is granted to you. And you might, be, you might say, God must be in this, right? God has answered my prayers. God is working in this situation to, to give me the desire of my heart and to bless me. But what happens when you get fired from that job that you love? Well, your boss must be just an incompetent fool. God must not be in that. We do this with politicians. If the politician who you like wins, well, then God's face shines brightly on our nation. But if the politician that you like loses, well, then Satan is out of his cage again. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we got to put him back in his cage, and then things will be right again. Don't you realize that everyone's praying for, you know, there are Christians whose politicians win and, and lose. And Just in case you didn't get enough politics at Thanksgiving dinner, I thought I'd bring a little bit more in. Saul's men couldn't imagine it could be anything different than God's will. Saul's men could have said the exact so Saul's men on the other hand, Saul's men could have said the same thing that David's men said. Saul, you've been hunting this guy for years. God has given you a gift of all the caves in the whole city. God has stirred in your bladder at the right moment. <laughs> After all, God is the maker of your body. He is the one who, who makes it function the way that it does. His spirit entered into your body, gave you the impulse to, to evacuate your bowels or whatever. Sorry, I'm, I'm being, I'm just, I'm tossed, it's the Bible. And he, he, he gave you this desire at the right moment to go into that cave. God has given you your enemy, David. You've been so close and now God is on it. You see how they could do the same exact thing. How do we know? How do we know God's will? question is, who, who are you listening to? Are you speaking for God in certain situations where He has not spoken? 
Are you making determinations of God's will where he has not made a determination of his will? Are you adding to what God has said when God has already said what he feels is right? And you're adding to that. Are you going about your day? You play back advice and comments and suggestions from other people. I encourage you to evaluate your heart. Who are you listening to? Whose voice in your life carries the most weight? Is people around you? Is it God's voice? We must train ourselves like David in situations like this that tug on our heart in deep moments like this where vengeance is such a big puller of, of our heart and our emotions. David is able to cut through those noises. He's able to know and remember what God has said. God has already decided. God has already made a determination. This is God's anointed one. How can I lift my hand against him? And so we see that, that David doesn't kill him. And yet he does go on, and his actions do follow the conversation with his men. And it leads us to the next question, not just who are we listening to, but actually what moves us, what moves you. David's actions follow his conversation, and he cuts off a part of Saul's robe. David spares Saul's life, but his personal response to this action is really surprising, isn't it? David goes there, and he cuts off the robe, and he comes back, and he is deeply moved. Um, I dwelled on this, this phrase a lot because I think it's really profound. So David's heart struck him. This is an interesting way to say it. You and I might say, I was, I was cut to the heart. But not many of us would say, my heart was doing the cutting. It, it, it could be that David is saying, David's heart slayed him. David's heart slaughtered him. David's heart attacked him. It seems so ridiculous that David would feel ashamed for such a thing. If anything, don't you think, if anything, that David did a really great thing, that he did a good thing? What a great, what a tremendous amount of restraint that David, that David exercised. What a great amount of self-control. Don't you see how easy it is, even, even in that thinking, to make excuses for David? Well, David, come on, look at all the things that you could have done that you didn't do. Your men wanted you to do this, but you didn't. I mean, yeah, you did this thing and you cut off his robe, but... But you're, you, you are awesome, David. I mean, nobody's perfect. Look at your self-control. David, you're just being really too hard on yourself. But David is, he says that his heart, he was so conscience-stricken. He felt he had just been, not just wounded, he felt he had just been slayed. Why? For something so small. Why? Well, you see, David's not just merely interested in being a good person. He's interested in being a man after God's heart. And therefore, his actions and, the, and, and how good or bad those actions are are not determined by if people thought they were good or if people thought they were bad or comparing himself to other people or even comparing himself to the worst he could have done. David's a man of genuine faith who wants his heart to be so Godward in nature that the slightest, the slightest uh, movement from God's will the slightest taking things into his own hands is as if David did the worst he could do. It was as if he slayed Saul himself. A symptom of genuine faith is repentance and a pursuit of obedience. A symptom of genuine faith is to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to be so captivated by what God has said and done that our hearts are just geared towards God that any wavering from God, His character, nature, or will, 
it feels as if we have just been wounded deeply in the deepest part of our heart. You're not concerned so much with how you measure up to what others are doing. Your eyes are fixed on God. And you want to correct that when you have drifted from the lane of God's will. There's this button on my car um, that's just labeled LDW. And I had to figure out what it was, what it was but it stands for Lane Departure Warning. And my car, you know, maybe you have this. If you, if you depart from your lane or merge or you cross that dotted white line without using your blinker, your car will set off an alarm, right? Well, mine just has the audible reaction. You know, some people have, like, the vibrations in their seat, you know, if you, if you, if you go from another lane without using your blinker or electrocute you. Like, some are, like, really strong. I've been in cars, cars like that. Well, not only will it beep really aggressively, but it'll actually vibrate. Other people have the audible warning and the vibration, and then some cars actually have like the autocorrect where the wheel will actually jerk in the other direction. I mean, these cars are terrifying. They're not getting safer, okay? <laughs> it's like all these distractions, like, oh my goodness. I turn my LDW button off. I, I turn mine off. I don't have any, any warning. You know why I had to turn it off? Because I don't want someone pointing out all the mistakes I make in a day, okay? You know, because I, I make excuses for it. You know what? There's no one behind me. I don't need to put my blinker on, so just back off. Stop telling me that I'm, I know, I know I'm going in the other lane, and I'll be okay. I don't want someone pointing out all those faults. Because why? Because I am not looking to be a repentant driver. I'm not looking to be, I'm not looking to be the best driver out there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a professional NASCAR racer. I just want to get from point A to point B and to get there safely. Who cares if I make a bunch of mistakes along the way? Sometimes we can think of our, of our relationship with God and our personal pursuit of holiness in that way. I mean, come on, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, I make mistakes, I'm not looking to be the best person in the world. I'm just looking to get through this life from where I am to where God wants me to be and to, to have as minimal damage as possible. It's really the wrong way to look at it, and that's not how David's looking at it. He was deeply wounded. That, that lane departure warning blinker goes on, and David is pulling over and, and giving up his license. I'm, I'm just not, not going to drive anymore. Now, moving from that analogy to what God wants to show us here, David is moved. He's moved by something that we see as not important. How many of you think that you're breaking the law by not using your blinker by changing lanes? You are. Enough to get a ticket, enough to lose your license even if you keep doing that. But we think it's like, wow, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's a little law. It's not as important. David saw it as such a huge life change. David sees it as huge. What's the significance of what he did? The answer could be found in the other places in our story that we've learned where we see robes. We've seen the symbolism of, of this three times now. The first we see where Saul, Saul rips, he tears Samuel's robe. And Samuel looks at Saul and says, As you have torn my robe, God has torn the kingdom from you and will give it to somebody else. We see in another place where, where Jonathan, Saul's son, takes off his robe and gives it to David, symbolizing uh, that uh, of David's rise to the throne, that the kingdom has been given to David and will be his in a matter of time. David is, is moved by something we don't see important. David now cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, symbolically cutting off Saul's kingdom. The anointed king was regarded to have such a relationship with God himself that to violate the anointed king was to violate God himself. David was so cut in his heart. His heart wounded him and slaughtered him so deeply because he saw that act of revolt against Saul, 
an act against the will of God, an act, an act of revolt against God's timing for David to take the kingdom. You see, his, his friends were saying, take the kingdom. You've been promised to be king. But David, he, he knew that God's means must, would, would, would also lead to God's will. And, and the kingdom was not going to be taken. The kingdom was not going to be ripped or snatched. But the kingdom was to be given to David in God's time. And he felt that he had moved his heart from God's will. It was true that it was God's will for David to be king, but he had to become king in the way that God wanted. And he had to become king in the timing of God's timing, not ripped but given. It was more than a concern of his own reputation. He was, his heart was a Godward orientation. And so something that we might see as small and we might say, but look at all the bad you didn't do, David, it's enough to wound him and cause him to repent. Do you see what David says? He says, who am I to do this to the Lord's anointed? The one that God has put in place, the one that God has anointed. Who am I to take that into my own hands apart from God's timing? Consider what moves you. I mean, what, what moves you to the point where you are able to see how you have drifted from the lane of God's, of God's commands to you, of God's desires for you, God's will for you? What moves you to get back into that place of repentance and obedience? We're moved by so many things. Some of us, it's a fear of what others might think of us. We want to do good things. We want to do the right things so that we're not ridiculed by others. Others, it's shame over the person we become, and we make promises to ourselves. Well, I'll never do that again. I don't want to be that kind of person. So we're motivated to move because we feel shame. Others feel guilty about how God might see them. We feel this weight of fear and guilt from God that God is so displeased from us, we want to make him happy, so we, we move back into that lane. Well, David's not motivated by any of those things. David is moved by an overflow of affection for God. He is moved. What, what moves you from a lane of drifting and disobedience to moving in obedience to God? Is it a love for God? Is it a response to His grace for you? Is it, it, are, you, are you influenced more by what God says rather than what people say around you? And are you moved to repentance, not because other people think it's bad or you think it's bad, but are you moved to repentance to the degree that God has said it's bad? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? We see this amazing, amazing act of David to be so cut to his heart for an act that he saw as drifting from God's heart. And so we ask, we want to evaluate our heart. Who are we listening to? What moves us? What compels us in our life? And lastly, where is your strength in the waiting? This passage begins with a lot of excitement, doesn't it? A lot of excitement. I love what passages go right into this. There's this high drama. This is a great movie where two people at odds, enemies with one another, and here is Saul in the cave that David is, is, is resting in. And it starts with such excitement, but it ends really disappointing. After David confronts Saul, we read this in verse 22 at the end of the chapter. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. After this incident, Saul goes back home, and David and his men go back into the caves. Isn't this disappointing? Can you imagine the conversation that David had when he went back into the cave to meet his men? Well, what happened, David? What happened? Did you kill him? No, I didn't kill him. Well, where'd he go? He went back home. Well, what are we going to do? 
We're going to keep running from Saul. Why didn't you kill him? I mean, this could have ended everything. It could have ended all of our discomfort. God gave him into your hands. Who am I? Who am I to, to decide for God what means we will, we will achieve God's will? What do we do? We stay in the caves until God gives us the kingdom that he has promised to us. In that cave, David had the opportunity to skip years of suffering. He had the opportunity to skip his life of suffering and fast forward to the throne that God had promised to him. But it was not God's way, so it wasn't David's way. Imagine this. Imagine the kind of focus and faith you would have to have to be David in this moment and say, God, I trust you so much that you will do what you said you were going to do. I don't need to sin in the smallest way to speed up that process. I trust you not only for the faithfulness for this to be accomplished, but the means by which you will provide. And this isn't it. This is not it. So I'm going to go back to the cave and I'm going to wait on you. David had in his authority and power the opportunity to skip a life of suffering and fast track to a life of, of prosperity. And if, we, and if we convince ourselves, we'll say that was his all along that God eventually would give to him. You can see the dilemma that David finds himself in. Kill Saul, I get the kingdom right away. Let him live, and I will continue to suffer and wait on God to act. What do I do? You can almost hear David talking to himself in this situation in ways that, that we might talk to ourselves. I've done nothing wrong, and here is this man trying to kill me. I have killed a giant for Saul when no one else would stand up for him, for, for, for God's people and I won. I have served Saul and played music for him at the end of his battles, at the end of a long day. I have been a friend to him, and he has been nothing but an enemy. I've been loyal to him, and he's taken everything from me. The kingdom's already been given to me by God. I'll just take it now. Wouldn't you say these things? Wouldn't you listen to friends who said these things? You would say, yeah, that's right. This is God's will. But ultimately, David puts his future in God's hands. It's like the kind of test from God. It's the kind of test that not only is for David, but it's the kind of test for any servant of God, anyone who follows God, anyone who desires to not follow a culture that, 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 whose value and dominant value is do what seems right in your own eyes, anyone who desires to follow the shepherd king, Christ, who is the anointed king, raised up for us. We need to have the same kind of focus, the same kind of trust in God's work. We must trust in God to give us His good in His way. And it's not just a let it go mentality, it's not, which is passive. We're just saying, okay, I'm going to let it go, and I'm just going to trust God, and whatever will happen will happen. But it's an active faith that knows that God's trustworthy no matter what happens. We are prone to think that God is silent when things are not going our way, that He is, is neglectful when things happen to us that bring harm to our lives. When things don't work out for our favor, we think that God wants us to speed things up. We see God's people doing this all throughout Scripture. We see that Abraham and Sarah did this in the long, long time ago. And what did God came to Abraham and, and, and Sarah? 
And he promised them, which they had no kids and Sarah couldn't even have children. They were well advanced in age and 90 years old. And God said, through you, through your own seed, will come, will come one who will bless all nations. And I will fulfill my promises to love and save and be with my people through forever through your offspring. And they don't, we, we don't have a baby. And God says, wait, and I'll give you one. They wait like 14 years, no baby. So Sarah says, Abraham, maybe God was, maybe you should sleep with one of my friends. And Abraham says, no, honey, that sounds like a really good idea. (laughs) And that that offspring is Ishmael, and that offspring is at war with the promised offspring, and they've been at war ever since. They continue to wage war today in the Middle East. Because they said, okay, God has promised us a family. So maybe if I just, maybe if I take these, the means in my own hand, maybe God has given me a friend that my husband wants to, wants to have a baby with. That's God, right? That's a God thing. And Abraham says, I think it is a God thing. And obviously there's great disobedience in that and great pain from that. We desire so strongly to find a way to minimize the time-consuming labor of our personal sanctification that we are willing to cut corners to get there. And it doesn't happen that way. If we seek glory without the road of, that leads to the cross, we will not find it. There's this movie that I've been thinking about that has been really insightful. It's not, I don't know, it's, a, it's not really a great movie. It's called It's Click with uh, Adam Sandler. Don't watch it. It's not very good. But in this, so the whole premise of the movie is this guy has a tough life. His work is painful. His family life is stressful. He's constantly fighting with his wife and kids. His boss is constantly breathing, breathing down his neck. He has deadline upon deadline upon deadline for work that's keeping him from enjoying his family and going on vaca- family vacations. And he goes to find a, a universal remote control, and he goes to Bed Bath & Beyond, and there's a sign that says Beyond, and he goes in there, and he finds a universal remote control that controls the universe. Okay? And in this remote, with this remote, he can fast-forward, he could rewind, he could pause, he can do it all. And so what he does is he uses it to fast forward through all the struggles in his life. He fast forwards through all the, the fights with his wife. He fast forwards with all the, all the pain and, and, and bickering with his children. He fast forwards through all the work deadlines that he has to do at work. He fast forwards through all the presentations. He fast forwards through all the dinner t- uh, boring dinner time conversations. He fast forwards through it all. And what happens is he wakes up one day and his whole life is over. His wife has left him, his kids are, he doesn't know, he's old and sick, and he's missed it all. David trusted that God's will would be done, but he had to pursue it in God's way, and he was content with that. He was content with that. Where, are you, where do you desire to fast forward if you had this button? I mean, the, the movie is supposed to make us think, how awesome would that be? to fast forward through all the suffering, all the pain. But God wants us to see through countless ways in Scripture, through David, that there is no greater place we can be than in the trusting arms of God who has promised himself to us. Never in taking things in our own hand. There is no amount of sinning that will ever work out good. And say, see, see, God still gave me those good things even though I took it in my own hands. There's no greater place we see this than in the life of Jesus. Jesus was given countless opportunities to skip a life of suffering. Before his, his ministry even began, 
Look at what happened to Jesus. He was in the wilderness. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. He hadn't drinking anything for 40 days, and Satan comes and tempts Jesus. And you know what he says? He says, I know you're, you're preparing yourself for this journey to the cross to die for these horrible people, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to skip it all and to still have the world. I'll give you everything, Jesus, and you will never have to die. And David reminds Satan what God has already said. He rebukes him, and he casts him from there. Later, we see, David, we, see, we see Jesus again before Pilate, the governor who now holds Jesus' life in his hands. And he says, you say, that, you say that you're a king. I'm going to give you one last chance. If you are, then where, where are your soldiers to come and rescue you and defend you? And Jesus, doesn't, Jesus says, my kingdom is not in this world. Again, Jesus has the power and authority to say, you're right. And all of his soldiers would come and rescue Jesus, and he would be safe. But he says, my kingdom is not in this world. I do have soldiers, but I need to go through this. And he's killed. And on the cross, he there hangs, and he is bleeding to death. And people mock him, and they say, if you are the king of the Jews, and, you're the, and you are the God of heaven, the Son of God, then call your angels down, and they will come, and they'll fix your wounds, and they'll rescue you from all of this pain. And Jesus could have done it, and he doesn't do it. Instead, he goes to his death. He does not survive his execution, and he dies. The irony of all this temptation is that Jesus had the authority to, to skip it all, but he didn't. And like David, who had the authority to take what was his, he didn't. The strength in waiting on God's will to unfold comes through trusting in God's timing. Trusting in God is not just a blind trust to a system of belief. It's a trust in a person. It's a trust in God because we're persuaded that the God who has made promises to us is trustworthy and He will accomplish what He has said He will accomplish. He assures us that He has good, wise, holy, and loving reasons for what He does, but He doesn't promise to tell us what those reasons are. Instead, He tells us to trust in Him. Because we have learned He's trustworthy, we can take Him at His word and we can keep on trusting Him. And it was in Christ's patience through His suffering. It was in Christ's trust in God's will for His life that led to our salvation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He stands there and He probably says and feels something that David felt where he says, take this cup from me, let the suffering be over. And I imagine David felt the same thing in that cave. God, I want so badly to just be at rest. But not my will, but your will be done. And if Jesus hadn't done that, if he hadn't said that and felt that and followed through, then we would have no hope. But like David, Jesus is, he is that better David, the one who suffered did not take the easy way out, but suffered for us. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is the clearest evidence in all the world that those who seek to find their joy and purpose in life for do, by doing things as they see fit will lose it all. But those who lose their life for the sake of following Jesus will gain it all. And it's a time in our culture where personal freedom and living your life as you see fit is the most popular thing. It's no wonder that we have much to lose in this life by way of comfort, 
convenience, and even reputation by submitting our lives to God, His Word and His rule, His kingly rule in our life through Jesus Christ. But you will never be sorry that you did. You will never be sorry that you did, for only in laying down your life will God raise it back up. If you were to monitor your heart today, as we close this series, it's good and fitting to evaluate where we are, who are we listening to, what voices are we listening to for how we should live our lives and where we should put our hopes and dreams. What moves you? What moves you back into that lane of of obedience and repentance in God? Acknowledging your sins and weaknesses, acknowledging your ways that you wander from Him and shift from His, His will. What moves you back into that? Is it His grace? It is His love for you. And what is your strength? What will see you through? Would it be your own might? Would it be your own accomplishments? Would it be uh, your own success? Would it be a, the success of others in your life, possibly a spouse or even your children? Or would it be in the Lord? in what He has promised. Total dependency on Him. Total dependency with no strings attached on His power and His faithfulness and the promise of what He said He will do and trusting that He will see it through. I I recognize that this kind of patience in suffering is so unnatural. It it is unnatural. What's natural to us is, is to pursue this by way of legalism. If I do what is right, then God will reward me. If I expect right things from others, then they will do what I want them to do. It is so unnatural to trust in the grace of God. It's so unnatural to to trust that He will accomplish His good for us and the world, even in the midst of our own weakness, even in the midst of our own sinning. It's so unnatural. And so we must make it an object of special desire and prayer we must make this an object of our special desire, finding ways to think deeply on God and what He has said, and asking God, God, would, you, would your voice be so clear? Would I be so acquainted with what you say that when other voices come in, I would say, that's not what God says at all. God's not like that. God doesn't speak like that. God has already spoken, and I'm going to trust in what He has said. We need to make it an object of our special longing that we should point our affections and our heart and our minds and everything in our life towards knowing God and resting in what He has said. Willingly submitting ourselves to His care and His will is so unnatural. And that's because grace is unnatural. It's so unnatural. But it's God's grace that enabled David, and it's God's grace that enabled us. All throughout this story, we have seen that David is the picture of weakness. He's a puny guy, has no right to the throne, and God has given it to him. Grace is unnatural, but it's exactly what we've been given through God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see here that Jesus had a patience for suffering. And He is the King that did not rip the the kingdom for His own good. He's the King that actually was cut in two. He is the King that was actually wounded. He is the King that was actually struck down so that we would have the fullness of God and fullness of rescue. It's God's grace that enables David. It's God's grace that enables us to follow him in an age that worships personal freedom.